0: This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit RedemptionAZ.com. Let's stand together. We're going to read Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. The reason we stand is out of respect for God's word. And um, we want to posture ourselves in a position of listening. And so as you are standing, I I want you to, to open your ears and remember this is God's word. Can you say amen to that? Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them, and in anger and deep distress at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's been a, a real joy to go through this series with you guys. I, I will tell you this. I, it's hard for me to express how much I love being a part of this church. And and don't mistake that that means you all are great people, uh, because I I think all of us know that we are um, broken and weak and have a lot of imperfections. Can you say amen to that? But it is in that place that I believe God has done miracles in this place that has brought a people together from all types of backgrounds and all types of walks of life who are boasting in the grace of God. And what I love about this place and each one of you is that we get to come before God together with Him as our Father and call each other family. I love preaching here. It is is an extreme joy of mine. I love being a part of this church, and, 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 and mostly because of how much you all teach me. I think being a part of a family, my, my two sons uh, had their birthday this, this, this week and one tomorrow, and my wife also this week. So I had three of the seven birthdays in our family all in one week, so it's just as expensive as Christmas for me, you know? <laughs> and as I watch my children grow up and I watch them develop it's a great joy not only to be their father, but to sit with them and hear and learn from them and become friends with them. I, I love I love my, my children. I love what God is doing in my family. And I, I just want you to hear that a couple of weeks ago, as we jumped into a text together, I learned from a brother in this congregation. I shared that with you. And some of the stuff today... Uh, I get to share too some stuff that I, I learned. Now I, I told in the first service, I don't I didn't even share names, I don't try to, but we have in this community people who struggle with disabilities. And, and and here's here's how you know, because it's obvious to see. It's obvious to see. And what you see here is a man who is identified. By his disability. He's a man with a shriveled hand. You don't even know his name. And the reality is, is that he was basically brought to the temple because the Pharisees were looking for a way to accuse Jesus. This man was bait. This man was being used as a pawn. And the thing you would see if you, if you read this same, uh, this same story in Luke 6, verse 6, it would say that this man had his right hand. Now, it's interesting that Luke was a physician, and when he's writing his account of this story... He noticed as a physician or heard or made sure that detail was there that it was his right hand. Why that is important is because this would be a man's uh, joy and and a man's opportunity and a man's uh, just joy in life to be able to contribute and care for the family and the community. But because of his disability, it, it made it so that he could not care for his family. He couldn't work. So inside of this, there's a few things that as I'm looking at the text, I'm trying to say, Let, let's, who is this man? And then uh, in my RCA, I got to sit with a sister of mine, and, and uh, she's in our community. Huge, huge blessing. And both Matthew and her shared something with me that I thought was profound. They said, there's something about being in the, the disabled community that we just wish, a lot of them just wish, they could be in a community and just be a part of it without having to always talk about our disability. I just wish I could be friends and a part of the community and blend into the community and be a part of the community and be a contributor and that they could see past my disability and see who I am. And when you look at this text, what you can end up seeing is there is a man who is identified by his brokenness, unable to blend in, and is a prop for people's self-righteous agenda. He was brought to the temple to set Jesus up. Now, there are people in this room Who can relate with that feeling like they can only be seen for their sin, their brokenness, whatever, their their disability. They can only be seen through that category. Like it, It doesn't matter who they are. All that matters is their brokenness. And they have no way to just be a part of something without standing out. And then there are self-righteous agendas and ideologies who would use this group of people or this person to prove their points. You just feel like a pawn. If you're sitting in this room today and you can relate to that in any way, I pray that today this text becomes a source of encouragement and a source of hope for who Jesus looks at and sees and draws near to. But there's also another group of people in this text that I want you to look at with me, and uh, they are the Pharisees. Now, as you look at the Pharisees, I think you're going to see uh, something uh, interesting. And I I want to highlight some of these on the screen. If you have your Bible in front of you, you could start highlighting some areas to meditate on later. But I want you to look that first off, they brought this man looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And and basically they were using him as a pawn. And, and, And think of Jesus being put up on, if you will, in front of everybody to teach, and and they're bringing him into the synagogue, and he's going to do some teaching. For some reason this day, Jesus is going to be the teaching, and now he is in this place. They've come not to listen to him teach, but they've come to set him up. And it says, they were watching I want you to, we'll look at this word later, but they were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. In another account, I think Matthew's account, it says that they asked Jesus, would he heal on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they were obviously setting him up. I, I want you to see these Pharisees through a game I want to play with you today, or a punchline, or, or, or my setup, you know, like, you know they're a redneck if, or whatever those are. I, I came up with a game. You know you're a Pharisee when. First, you know you're a Pharisee when you're constantly looking for reasons to accuse and trap your enemies. Oh, Be careful. Don't overlook the log in your eye too quickly and start bumping your neighbor and going, this is you. (laughs) Because I have seen in our culture a heightened desire to see our enemies destroyed. And we are constantly looking for ways to trap them. That when we see enemies, whatever kind of enemy we think they are, whoever we've deemed, we are always looking for ways for them to fail, to accuse and to trap. Isn't it amazing that the person that you've called your enemy, whatever the reason it is, they constantly proving you right? is it amazing that everything they do is constantly reiterating your point that they should die? That they're not great, that they don't have any hope, that they're basically, let me just keep proving it to you. Every day I open up social media, I'll give you new proof. We sit back and watch and accuse and trap people. We're constantly having confirmation, and and, and even worse, looking for confirmation for why our enemies should die. You know you're a Pharisee when, you're not laughing, these are punchline, no? Okay. You know you're a Pharisee when people are props to your ideologies and your laws. All of a sudden, you're willing to take people's hurts, pains, brokenness, disabilities, and use them as props to advance your ideologies and agendas. And isn't it amazing how we will see people in pain and suffering and agony, and all we could talk about is our laws. And this is another reason why our laws will work. And another reason why our ideologies need to advance. And people become props. And in the face of agony and pain and death and suffering, what we care about is our agenda. You know you're a Pharisee when... what? Well, they asked Jesus a question, and we're going to go back to Jesus in a moment, so I'm not skipping over over Jesus. I I want us to look at the Pharisees and keep playing this game, and then we'll go back to Jesus. Jesus asks them a question, and the scriptures say, they remain silent. Wanted to make sure you saw it too. They remain silent. Now, if you know anything about the Pharisees, if you could get them not talking, that was a miracle, right? They loved to teach, they loved to trap, they loved to ask questions, but they remained silent. You know, you're a Pharisee when you are silent. Because the truth doesn't fit your agenda, all it does is exposes your inconsistencies. Isn't it amazing that each party, each agenda, each ideology has its form of injustice that it champions? And every time Something proves their point. It proves that their agenda is right. But if there is one that doesn't fit their agenda, that exposes their inconsistencies, they stop talking. It's amazing to me how many Christians have fallen into promoting agendas rather than promoting the gospel. That even when injustices take place, they won't say anything anymore because that injustice doesn't fit their party's agenda. And all they can do is remain silent when people are in pain and dying and agony because if they say something it will show how inconsistent they are in their ideologies. It wasn't that they didn't have an agenda. They had a very clear agenda. But if they said something, it would expose how they're not even following their own set of beliefs. It would expose that they don't care about life as much as they say they do. It would expose that they may care about this life, but they don't care about that life. All they would do is expose how completely foolish and inconsistent. And so our choice is not repentance, it's silence. Because if we say something, it will make... The party we're loyal to look bad. The question here then is where do our true loyalties lie? I thought this would be a fun game and you all are real quiet today. (laughs) You know when you're a Pharisee win, I'll try to say it different ways every time. Your mind is so set that even Jesus can't change it. Now, I know, I know can't is a bad word, right? I know can't is a bad word. Yes, he can. He's able. Oh, yes, he can. He can do it. Oh, oh, yes, he can. You don't know nothing about that. But, 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 but hear me on this. In this text... It says they were so stubborn that even Jesus didn't change their mind. I'm convinced that there are so many judgmental, self-righteous, ideological people that even when you use Jesus and they call themselves Christians, even Jesus can't soften their heart. Because all they care about is their agenda. Scripture shows us that they were stubborn in their hearts. Stubborn, hard hearted. They were stubborn in their hearts. They had their mind set up. They were. Watching him closely, trying to find if he would do something that was outside of their agenda, their laws. Hmm. They were stubborn. Now church, I, I want you to, to see this. Because I think it is extremely important for us as we press into these kinds of realities that we also see that the Pharisees, look at this, went out to plot with the Herodians how they would kill Jesus. See that? You know you're a Pharisee when you're willing to do whatever it takes to advance your agenda. Whatever. And when I say whatever, I I mean whatever. They are willing to partner with the Herodians. Now, you're like, who are the Herodians? Just think of it this way. It was the other party. The Pharisees and the Herodians were like two parties. I don't know. It was like a two-party system. No, they were them of multiple parties. I don't know. But they were They didn't like each other. And now they're willing to work together to kill Jesus. Here's what Jesus does. He doesn't fit into any of those parties. And all of a sudden what takes place is he makes everybody angry and they're willing to kill him so that they can both carry. It's mutually beneficial for Jesus to die so that both of our agendas and we can continue to be enemies after he's gone. We don't agree on a lot of things, for sure. We hate each other. But the one thing we do agree on, Jesus needs to die. Because he shows how we are both extremely inconsistent. And you remember those laws and rules that you were so passionate about? You're willing to break them If it's convenient. Because your laws are not convictions. They're actually just moral traps to set people up. Your laws are not convictions that you actually follow. You remember what they were harping on Jesus for? I hope he doesn't heal. I mean, I hope he heals so that he can be trapped. And if he heals on the Sabbath day, and and if he does that on Sabbath, then then he would be working, and and this is going to show that he's not from God. But the minute he does something out of that box, they're willing to break the rules and work on Sabbath day plotting his death. They're working it. They're strategizing, and this would be considered a breaking of their own laws. I thought that game would be funner, but you guys made it a drab. <laughs> Here's the thing about Pharisees is none of us want to admit that we have That's because we see in our eyes that Jesus confronts them. Jesus convicts them. Jesus says things to them that that seems like uh, their enemies, but I, I want us to, to look in this story and not immediately identify with the, the broken and the, the hurting, although I think we should, but I, I also think we should see that how Jesus treats those who are judgmental, self-righteous, and, 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 and because I'll tell you what, what we would do, we'd go plot their death. I'll tell you what we would do. We would write them off and just say, I'm tired. I do not want to talk to them anymore. I'm just, i shutting it all off. I'm done with the fight. I'm exhausted. They're not going to listen anyways. Forget it. But I want you to see a couple of things that Jesus does. First, let's look at how he treats the man. Jesus says to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. I love this. Stand up in front of everyone. Here's what you need to see about Jesus' movement towards this man is that Jesus has nothing to hide. Come on, church. Come on, church. Jesus has nothing to hide, and he loves exalting the humble. He loves taking the broken, the outcast, the ones that everybody writes off and tries to use as props for their agenda. And he loves to exalt them and put them at right in the center and say, hey, you all thought you were the teachers? This is your teacher right now. Stands up in the center of the synagogue. And Jesus, instead of going, you know what, I know they're going to try to kill me. I'm going to go hide and protect myself. He doesn't go after self-protection. That's not something Jesus, I know we highly value our protection. But Jesus is not after his self-protection here. What he's really after is, is this consistency and this, this, this reality of Christ. He has nothing to hide. So he does it out in the middle and he exalts humble. What I love about Jesus is not only does he exalt the humble, but Jesus is a patient and skilled teacher. There is a teaching method that rabbis would use, but only the the most skilled, if you will. They would use a, a rabbinical kind of form of teaching called Kal van Homer which was a reality of taking something lesser and then starting your argument with the lesser and moving it to the major. So it was this reality of, let's start with something small. And in Matthew, when Jesus is, is interacting with the uh, Pharisees in this Uh, Same story, Matthew accounts that Jesus uses sheep. What he says here is, if there was a shepherd who saw his sheep in danger, would he not go to that sheep and save him, even if it was on the Sabbath day? And then he would say, all the much more, if your laws allow you to save sheep, why can't you save a human life? If your laws allow you to save animals, all the much more. This was a skilled argument that left them silent. But here's what I want you to see here is this required love for Jesus for his quote-unquote enemies. Y'all, we can talk about love day in and day out when we are talking about loving people who agree with us. But if you want to learn to love your enemies, a true kind of love, it's going to take you a love that is patient. This interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees shows that he was not trying to destroy them and trap them. He was trying to patiently teach them in love. And it is when they did not speak that he grew angry and distressed at the stubbornness of their hearts. If he didn't care about them, why would he get angry and distressed at the stubbornness of their hearts? There are many of us who have checked out of dealing with those who are on the opposite side of our enemies and we don't want to sit and patiently teach and walk and, and pray for the, transmi- the, 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 the transformation of those who might be judgmental. And the reason why is because we don't see ourselves as judgmental so God couldn't have any grace for somebody who is judgmental. So we have already judged them to death. By saying, I want nothing. I will not interact with anybody who does not fit in my box. And what ends up happening in this is Jesus shows his love for the Pharisee. Even though they didn't respond. He patiently, skillfully, in love, tried To convince them by using the skill that only an incredible communicator could. And he said, yeah, but it didn't work. You see, we are so convinced that unless love works, we shouldn't use it. We judge our love based upon if it works. I'll do this, but they never do anything back, so I'm going to stop loving. And you all use that in your relationships all the time. Don't even act like it. Listen, I've been showing love all the time, and my wife and my husband, they never show love back. So I'm stopping loving. (laughs) Y'all, maybe I'm the only one, I guess. Y'all self-righteous in here, right? Y'all, we do this with our enemies all the time. I've tried. I tried to reach out to them, and they don't want to listen. I've tried. I've tried. And, and I'm going to tell you this. This wasn't Jesus' first time of trying to convince, and it's not his last. And it wasn't the first time it didn't work. And it wasn't his last. Not only did he patiently and skillfully bring them to silence, But Jesus shows them something in us that is extremely important. And I I want you to see this. He looks around in anger and deeply distressed. Y'all, I know we have one image of love that's romantic. But the reason often we can't understand true love is because we don't see that love Rightfully gets angry. Because in this, Jesus uses their trap, because they set the trap. Jesus didn't set the trap. Jesus uses their trap and they fall into their own trap. See, God takes the things that we mean for evil and uses them for what? His, okay. They're falling into his own trap, and while they're falling into their own trap, Jesus models for us what true emotion looks like. See, y'all, we struggle with relating to Jesus because we think he just coldly teaches us truths. We have a cold view of Jesus, meaning he didn't care about people. All he wanted you to do was get the truth. That's it. Just know it, believe it, just get it. So all we do is study his teachings, but we don't pause to look at while he's teaching, he gets angry and deeply distressed. Church, can, can I... I, we could turn this into a, 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 a twisted teaching, I guess, on let's let's teach everybody how to get angry, <laughs> which is the wrong teaching for this text. Because you all know how to, you, you all get angry all the time. Let's just be honest. But anger is not... The question, do do we get angry or should we not get angry? This is not the question or even teaching you how to get angry and how to act in anger. It's what anger is rooted in that, that, that needs to be deeply embedded in us. Love gets angry. But it must start with love. Because here's what we see in this, is that his anger was not just anger with them and their silence and their stubbornness of heart, but that anger was rooted in a, a deep distress. He was hurt by this. These were his people, his creation. These Pharisees were image bearers. Broken image bearers enemies, ones who wanted to kill him and were plotting his death. And he got angry. B.B. Warfield says something profound, and you could look up the full quote, but it said this, it would be impossible for a moral being to stand in the presence of wrong and be indifferent and unmoved. You Here, listen, I I know y'all get angry a lot, lash out because somebody stole something from you, took something from you. And so a lot of times it's self-centered anger. Can we just admit that that's true? It's not loving anger. It's self-centered anger. A lot of times it has nothing to do with injustice or pain or suffering. It has more to do with somebody did something to me. So at the core, it's self-centeredness. We're not going to definitely talk about that, although that needs to be rooted out. But self-centeredness produces a lot of anger. But love produces anger, but it's slow to get there. Can we say amen to that? Love is slow to anger and abounding in love and mercy. He's abounding in something else, but he does get angry. And and, and it's like sitting in a place where you've, just imagine you sitting in a room where you've made covenant with somebody and they're telling you how they have completely, abandoned the covenant and are wanting nothing to do with you and have gone outside of it and have hurt you and gone to other gods and other places and and gone to other men or other women, whatever it may be, and they've broken the covenant, and you've been in this covenant for years, and you've been loyal and loving and faithful, and they've walked out on the covenant, and they're telling you how they have destroyed this covenant, and you sit there and don't get angry about it. It means you never loved them in the first place. You never fully loved them because if you fully love someone and they're destroying the covenant and destroying the family and destroying the work in which Christ has come to accomplish, you cannot look. And, and yeah, I've had a lot of people go, Pastor, uh, this person's angry at you. And I'm going, It doesn't surprise me. But you can go back to them because you came to me to tell me. You could go back to them too and tell them, I'm angry at them also. But my anger is going to be rooted in something else, I would hope. And the reality is, when you are not watching, but you're looking, we'll see that in a minute, and you're listening, not talking, and your heart is rooted in love, then what's going to happen is, you're going to have on this foundation, true love. Compassion slash anger slash distress, all kinds of emotions. But this is not the foundation of your life. This is a building block to move. Isn't it amazing that when Jesus was moved with compassion in Scripture, he was moved to do something. When Jesus was moved to anger in Scripture, he was moved to helping and to honesty. Always. When you don't have this foundation, but your foundation is judgment or self-righteousness, you're moved not towards or to helping or to honesty. You're moved to separation and to lying. So let me ask you this. When you get angry, do you separate or do you move towards? Your anger is exposing a deeper foundation. And the reality of this is what we see is Jesus shows us not only true emotion, that he was disconnected, but he shows us how to act when we get angry. When we see injustice, when we see stubbornness, when we see self-righteousness, when we see judgment, it's not like, forget it, I'm done, I'm tired of this, everybody's judgmental, nobody cares, and listen, I get it. But Jesus heals and restores while they separate and plot death. See, righteous anger moves us towards healing, moves us towards community. It moves us towards each other. Now, as the band comes, I want us to meditate on something together. This actually was my favorite part of this text, and the rest was just fluff to get here, you know? I, I want you to ask this question Why did Jesus ask the man to step, to stretch out his hand? I wish I could spend a lot of time on this. I, I, judgment, watches, and traps. Meditate on this later. While love looks, sees, and acts. If you're just sitting on a seat watching all the brokenness around you and trapping and accusing, you might be judgmental and self righteous. But if you're seeing the brokenness, and hearing the things that God, that is taking place in the world, or in your church, or your community around, it moves us. Compassion and anger, it moves us towards acting in love and restoration. Why did Jesus have him stretch out his hand? I want you to just uh, imagine this as we head into worship together, because this is profound to me, and Jesus is the first, he healed people in a lot of ways. There was a lot of, like he'd spit in dirt and rub it on eyes. He'd, he'd, uh, you know, someone would touch his clothes and, you know, but this is the only time that he has a man with a withered hand move his, stretch out his arm, move the body part, stretch out. And we, we, we would wrongfully go, well, this is how you heal people with a withered hand. Just ask them to stretch it out, you know. And miss the profound nature of, of, of what is taking place here. Because this is a fight over should you heal on the Sabbath day. And Jesus is teaching on Sabbath in the synagogue. And, in, and it's, it could be possible that they actually went back and read Deuteronomy in that service. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12 through 15, this talks about how we're supposed to observe the Sabbath. This is where they would become so passionate about the laws. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you, right? Six days you shall labor and do work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall do any works, neither you nor your sons, nor your male or female servants, nor your oxen, your donkey, or any of your animals, or any of your foreigners residing in your town, so that your male and female servants may rest. As you do. It's a day of rest, not just for you. It's a day of rest and it's a day of remembering. But what are you remembering? You're remembering that you were slaves in Egypt and it was the Lord your God who brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Here's a man with a, a shriveled hand, if you will. And on Sabbath, they're supposed to be remembering that they were broken, that they were dark and lost and slaves, but God's arm was not too short to reach out, to stretch out, and to heal them. But all they could do was fight over the fact that no healing should happen on the Sabbath day, and all along forgetting, that's the point! That's the point of rest. That's the point of Sabbath. That in it we remember. We rest and we remember that if it wasn't for our God who did not have an arm that's too short. Did not have a hand that didn't work. Did not have a hand that that couldn't reach. But that his arm and his hand was so mighty and so powerful that he could reach to the darkest and most broken places. To those who are lost and out there and were slaves to the world. But this Lord commanded us on this day to remember how he worked. church we sit in in moments like this we're called to rest but we're also called to remember our biggest problem of why we find ourselves judgmental and self-righteous towards those who don't fit our agenda is because we forget he had to reach us he had to pull you out of darkness He had to pull you out of slavery. He had to reach out and heal and restore you. And without him moving and without him healing. And so we sit in this place forgetting what he's done for us and thinking there's no way he could do it for someone else. See, when you forget what God's done for you, you forget how to treat other people. You forget how to care and love for. Them. When you forget how loved you've been, you forget how loving we can be with this power. And all of a sudden, notice this the man with the withered hand not only becomes healed, because we would make the healing the most important part. Not only does he become healed, but he becomes an illustration of God. He becomes fully restored and an example of how we who are restored should act stretching out our hand like he stretched out his hand towards us to care for those who are hurting and broken and in pain and those who are judgmental and self-righteous and those who are haters and those who are lovers and those who agree with you and don't agree with you and those who fit in your category and don't fit in your category that we are to be loving reaching out convinced that if it wasn't for the arm of God we would, we would have nothing I love this, this story because what it shows us is that not only does God want to heal you, he wants to use you not only does he want to restore you, he wants you to be an agent of restoration an illustration of How his love can work across and through. So as you close your eyes this morning, a couple things we're going to do. We're going to take a moment to remember that Sabbath is about resting in the healing and the work of Jesus and the mighty outstretched hand of Jesus. We're gonna remember that today is about resting and remembering. And we're gonna come and see all that Christ has done, and then we're gonna to ask together if you have loved me this way, how can I live in that same love and be an illustration and a picture of that love that they will see our love and they'll glorify you? How can we walk in that same way? Two ways we respond is by coming to the table by singing, worshiping, stretching out our arms to Him, receiving His grace. Another way we're going to respond today, we often do, is if you need prayer, we would love to pray for you. So I'd love for you to just pause a moment and listen to the music begin to go and ask the Spirit to work in your heart and then come to the table. And if you want prayer, come and receive prayer. But let's spend time just resting in the finished work of Jesus and communing with Him and listening to his voice. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.